0: time word of prayer father in heaven thank you for bringing us all here together who is sufficient for these things surely not me i just bring you ashes i bring you natural limitations i bring you all i have frailty flesh sin weakness and i ask you god that you will take it and that you will use it and that your spirit will be here and that you'll speak through me uh, and do a miracle Speak to our hearts, educate us, inspire us. If I say anything untrue or biblically inaccurate, please cover it over with your grace. And don't allow anyone to be, you know, turned the wrong way because of it, God. Um, Help everyone to hear me, uh, hear you through me. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, in Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 through 12, there is a message that is tailor-made for the people who live at the end of time. Revelation chapter 13 describes the circumstances that are to come upon the planet at the end of time. So God, he he responds to what's happening at the end of time by delivering a message that's tailor-made for the people who have to deal with the issues at the end of time. Revelation chapter 12 gives us a great picture of, of all of Christian history and how Satan persecutes the church, and how he, he, he tries to destroy Jesus. It's basically just, just a, a, a short, big picture glimpse of Christian history. Okay, Revelation chapter 12. And, and it shows us what the devil does throughout the course of Christian history. Then Revelation chapter 13 It, in more specific terms, in more clear terms, communicates how the devil does what he does throughout the course of Christian history, okay? So get this in your mind. Revelation chapter 12, a big picture of Christian history that shows us, that teaches us what Satan does through the course of Christian history. Then Revelation chapter 13, it's a more specific account of how the devil functions throughout the course of Christian history. If this makes sense, say amen. amen. It's a simple distillation of these two chapters of Scripture, okay? Yeah. Now, I'm going to run you through Revelation chapter 12 as fast as I can possibly do it, and then we're going to read together through Revelation chapter 13. Not all of Revelation chapter 13, but, 13, but just some of it. And then after we read through Revelation chapter 13, we're going to focus on the target verses that I want to focus on and just spend the last little bit of time in this presentation, I'm uh, looking at the, the first five verses of Revelation chapter 14, okay? So we're going we're gonna to look into the history of the Christian church in brief, not in detail, and then we're going to read through Revelation chapter 13 and find out specifically what the Bible predicted 2,000 years ago uh, would be happening throughout the course of Christian history and in specifics at the end of time. So um, in Revelation chapter 12, the chapter begins, and John says, I saw a sign in heaven. There was a woman, she was clothed with the sun. She had the moon under her feet, and there was a a garland or a crown of stars, 12 stars, around her head. In the Bible, oftentimes, the faithful of God are described as a woman. In Jeremiah chapter uh, 6 and verse 2, Jeremiah says, it's God speaking through Jeremiah, and God says, I have likened, the daughter of Zion or the people who are from my city like a delicate and comely woman. So John is in vision. He says, I saw a sign in heaven. There was a woman. Women, in, A woman is a, is, a, is a fitting symbol throughout most of Scripture for the people of God. Or throughout the Scripture, it's a symbol used to describe God's people. In uh, the Old Testament, there's a book called the, the, the book of Hosea. In the book of Hosea, God asks a, a man, Hosea, a prophet to marry a prostitute, and uh, it's a pretty tragic story, really. And and Hosea marries this prostitute, and she's faithful for a while, but then she's unfaithful. And she's faithful for a while, but then she's unfaithful, and he forgives her and tries to reclaim her, but she's perpetually unfaithful to him. It's quite a, a disturbing, and sad, and tragic story. It's a painful story to read, and and in the, in that book of Hosea. God communicates to uh, the prophet Hosea, Hey, listen, Uh, in in no uncertain terms he communicates this. I'm I'm asking you to do this. I've asked you to do this so that you can understand what it's like to be me. And and the whole book is based on this idea, this notion, this this almost universal notion throughout the course of the Old Testament that the people of God are like the wife of God or the the betrothed of God. They're married to God. They're like a woman compared to a woman. Uh, when God made a covenant with the Israelite people, it was as if they were getting married. Like, I'll be your God, you'll be my people, we'll work together, we'll be a partnership, we'll be one. The people of God are seen clothed with the sun, which represents the righteousness of Jesus, the prophet Malachi. He, 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 he calls Jesus the, the sun of righteousness, and he rises with healing in his win, wings. And she's, she's standing on the moon, and the moon is that which reflects the light of the sun. It testifies of the light of the sun. Well, what do we know testifies of the light of Jesus from the scriptures? Jesus says, these are they which testify of me, right? And so you've got this symbolic description of the people of God who are clothed with the righteousness of Jesus, who stand upon the foundation of the testimony of Jesus, which is the word of God. And then the Bible says, I saw another sign in heaven. there it was a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and ten uh, crowns upon his seven heads. And the Bible says that in in verse 9, this is a representation of Satan. And the Bible says that the woman is is there, and she's pregnant, and she's about to give birth, and the dragon is waiting there, uh, wanting to devour her child as soon as it's born. But the dragon fails, and the the child is caught up to God and to heaven. And then the Bible describes in Revelation chapter 12 the dragon, who is the devil and Satan, turning his attention to the woman. So he fails in his attempt to destroy Jesus, and so then he turns his fury, he turns his animus, he turns his anger towards the people who follow Jesus, the people of God. And persecution uh, gets to the point where the people of God, biblical Christians, genuine followers of Jesus cannot even function as normal members of society, and they have to flee into the wilderness for a period that the Bible predicted, 1,260 years. And this is exactly what we saw happen throughout the course of Christian history. Uh, Jesus is persecuted his entire life. The devil harasses him, harangues him, tries to get him to capitulate and to quit, and to become discouraged and disheartened, and to not go forward in his love for humanity and his desire to save humanity, but he fails. He fails, hallelujah, he fails. And Jesus gets called to God and to the throne, and he's going to be the ruler of the world, and he's going to rule the world completely and totally, obviously in a different way than the world is ruled now. Uh, and so the devil, he turns his attention, he turns his focus to the people of God, to the Christian church. And he he horrifically persecutes it for a really, really long period of time. And this is what Revelation chapter 12 teaches. And there's just a couple things that I just want to say uh, before we move into Revelation chapter 13. And I should read some text of scripture together. And that is that that primarily, that that dragon, that seven-headed, ten-horned dragon, primarily, according to the text, it says, that represents Satan. Okay, Explicitly, in no uncertain terms, that's the devil and Satan. But but secondarily, it represents the Roman Empire who who the devil was using to destroy Jesus throughout the course of his life. You may have heard the story that's found in Matthew chapter 2 where a group of wise men, they come from the east because they've seen the star of the Messiah in the sky. Now we don't really know who these wise men were. It could be because they're from the east. The Bible doesn't say specifically what that reference is. But uh, we do know that Chaldea, roughly, is east. The Chaldean lands, the the Babylonian, uh, Mesopotamia is east of of Jerusalem. And um, we know that Daniel was a captive. The prophet Daniel was a captive in Babylon. It's likely that the prophet Daniel was not keeping all of the truth of God to himself while he was in Babylon. And it was likely that he communicated the truth of scripture while he was there. And perhaps, just maybe, these wise men from the east, were people who had been affected by the teaching of Daniel. And they come to Jerusalem, and they're looking for the Christ. They're looking for the Messiah. They saw his star in the sky. And when they show up there in Jerusalem, and and they, they talk to King Herod, who is the king of Israel, but he's really an extension of the Roman Empire, he says, hey, listen, where's the Christ? Where's the king that's to be born? We've seen his star rising in the east. And King Herod hears of it. He's really troubled. He's jealous for his power, he's jealous for his throne, and he, instead of communicating that he'd like to actually exterminate the child that's to be born, um, he pretends that he'd like to worship it. He tells the wise man, hey, listen, go find the child, and when you find him, come back here to me, and I'll worship him. We'll all worship him together. This is a pretext. This is dishonest. He has no intention of worshiping the king that's to come. He wants to kill the king that's to come. And the devil is standing by the people of God waiting to devour the Christ as soon as he's born. And he's doing it through the Romans. And then he's, Jesus is killed on a Roman cross, right? He offers his life for the sins of the world, hanging and dying on a Roman cross. It was Roman whips that abused Jesus. It was Roman soldiers that punched him in the face. It was Roman soldiers who, who put a crown of thorn on his, thorns on his head. It was a Roman Tetrarch who put a sign over the cross that said, This is the Christ. Rome was the agent through which the devil was trying to get Jesus to quit on you and to quit on me. But it didn't work. So the red dragon of Daniel chapter Revelation chapter 12 represents primarily Satan, but secondarily Rome, pagan Rome, being used by Jesus. So Revelation chapter 12, it shows us what the devil does throughout the course of Christian history. And how he persecutes the people of God terribly and horribly and ferociously. And then Revelation chapter 13 shows us in more specific terms, more precisely, how he does it. Okay, And now we're in Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13 and verse 1, the Bible says, And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns. And seven heads. Now, this looks like the dragon of the previous chapter. It's not the dragon of the previous chapter, but it looks like him. It has seven heads and ten horns, just like the dragon. So it's similar in form, in fashion. In a way, it's the image of the dragon of Revelation chapter 12. Seven heads and ten horns. And on his horns, there were crowns, ten of them. And on his heads were blasphemous names. Verse 2. And the beast which I saw, notice this, was like a leopard. And he had feet that were like the feet of a bear. And his mouth was like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon, Revelation 12, gave him his power and his throne and his great authority. In Daniel chapter 7, there are nations depicted as beasts in verse 17 of the chapter and verse 24 these beasts uh, the Bible says represent uh, earthly powers earthly kingdoms okay Uh, powers on earth that rule okay so we can deduce by by looking at what the scripture says about these symbols in Revelation chapter 13 that this beast that's coming up out of the sea represents an earthly power or an earthly kingdom of sorts. Okay? So the Bible interprets itself, and we're reading Revelation and we're saying to ourselves, seven heads, ten horns, feet like a bear, body like a leopard, mouth like a lion. What the what the what? Right? Huh? When I was a little kid, i I'd go, I, my mom was like really into prophecies and stuff, because her brother was a hippie, and he was one of those guys who just ran around town talking about deep stuff. You know, I'm one of those guys, just a hippie who talks about deep stuff all the time, and so my mom kind of found his deep stuff really interesting, and she was searching for God, she was seeking for meaning, she was seeking for hope as a woman with no education and a couple of little kids that she was struggling and striving to, 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 to take care of. And she's looking for God, and her her hippie brother's always talking about this groovy, deep stuff. Philosophy, and Eastern religions, and astral projection, all kinds of groovy stuff. And so she starts to read the Bible, and where does she go? She goes to Revelation. She goes to Revelation, because that's where the beasts are, and that's where the groovy stuff is, and that's where the crazy stuff is, you know? Beasts coming out of bottomless pits. And smoke following locusts out of the earth, and these amalgamated beasts coming from the ocean, right? All this crazy stuff, the mark of the beast, you know? There was a song when I was a kid, uh, it was was written by Iron Maiden, it was called The Mark of the Beast. I used to listen to that song. I didn't know what in the world was talking about. And I don't think that the band had any clue whatsoever at all. They just, like, opened the book of Revelation. They read all the beasts. And they're like, dude, this is jamming. Let's rock out! Right? Oh, I got the beasts! All they knew is that they just, like, hate Christianity. They hate religion. So let's just write a song about, like, the beast. This amalgamated beast coming out of the sea, as it were, is identified in Scripture as just a power. It's an earthly power of sorts. It's a governmental power or a, or a kingly power, existence of power. In general, that's how you can understand beasts in prophecy. And it comes up out of the where, everyone. Where does the beast come up out of? It comes up out of the sea. In Revelation chapter seventeen, the sea is described as, as areas where there are, are highly dense populations of people. Okay? So so this is just a description of a power that arises out of humanity, basically. It, that's a simple distillation of what we're seeing here. Now, I want to review with you. I've said it already, you guys are really smart people. This, this animal, this beast that comes up out of the sea is composed of different parts, of different animals. It had feet like a what? Bear. 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 <coughs> it had a body like a... Okay. It had mouth, a mouth of a... Wow. Lion. Okay. And who gave it its seat, its power, and its authority? We just read The dragon. The dragon. Okay. So the dragon, which primarily represents Satan, but secondarily represents the pagan Roman Empire, gives this power, this rising power on earth, its seat, its power, and its authority. It's composed of different parts of different animals. Like, how do we make sense of that? Well, in Daniel chapter 7, there, as I said, there are nations represented by different animals. Interestingly enough, that the nations that are represented there by different animals are represented by a lion, a bear, and a leopard, and then a nondescript animal. Interesting, hey? So the revelator, John, are you with me? Does this make sense? We're all tracking together? So the revelator, John, is is trying, he's, he's wanting to show people a power that arises in the future that does the devil's bidding. He wants us to know. He wants to warn us, to make us aware. Why? Because God loves us. Right, And just a quick aside, uh, love does not only send pleasurable messages, love sends warnings for the sake of helping people to understand what they have to deal with. Does this make sense? And so, so he's, he's wanting to warn us, to alert us to how the devil is going to function throughout the course of Christian history, and in specifics at the end of time. And so he, he draws upon imagery from Daniel chapter 7. Okay? Now those nations represented in Daniel chapter seven were pagan nations. They were idolatrous nations. They were nations that worshipped carved images and carved items, which really essentially are just projections, okay? Projections that men make upon physical, you know, stuff that represents their views of God. You just had this these pagan nations that were idolatrous and perverse and twisted. And, and, and John, in predicting this power that's to come, he borrows that imagery of pagan nations, and he says, this thing is composed of what they were composed of. So this is an essentially pagan entity. And interestingly enough, it's not just pagan, but it functions in, in kind of a Christian way. So it says, the dragon gave him his power and his throne and his great authority. I saw one of its heads as if it had been... Wounded to death And his deadly wound Or his fatal wound, my Bible says, was healed And the whole earth was amazed And followed after this power They worshipped the dragon Who gave his authority to this power And they worshipped the beast Saying, who is like the beast? And who is able to make war with him? And they were given him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemy and authority to act for 42 months. Now, check this out. Okay, this beast arises from the where? Okay, this beast has power for 42 months. You know how long of a time that that actually is? 1260 days or, or, or three and a half years. Okay? The Bible says that this this power, this 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 system, receives a what? A deadly, wound. a deadly wound. It receives a mortal wound. It's inflicted a mortal wound. That mortal wound is healed. It's resurrected. Now think about this. Jesus, when he began his public ministry, guess where he began? In the Jordan River. In Acts chapter 10, and verse 38, the Bible says that Jesus was anointed for the ministry of Christ when he was baptized. And when he was baptized, he went into the water, and then he came up out of water. Jesus ministered on earth for, guess how long? Three and a half years. Huh. Jesus received, what kind of a wound? Kind of like a scratch? <laughs> a stub toe? He, re- he received... A deadly wound, but guess what? Hallelujah! The deadly wound was healed. He was resurrected. You with me? Jesus received his seat, his power, and his authority from the Father. This power receives its seat, its power, and its authority from the Dragon. And do you see any parallels here between this pagan beast and Jesus? So, what the Bible is saying in the days of John is that a paganized form of Christianity is going to become the agent through which Satan receives worship and persecutes true believers. You have no bias. You have no prejudice. You have no religious indoctrination. You just evaluate the text of Revelation 13, and you can come to the conclusion that I'm coming to right now, right? Because we've just reasoned from the text. I don't have any quotes, right? No other white quotes, right? I haven't delivered to you any statements from a particular church. I've reasoned with you from the text of Scripture, right? Pagan nations represented in the Old Testament. Lion, bear, leopard. This power that arises and acts like Jesus is composed of that. It's a paganized form of Christianity. And did you know that's a perfect prediction of the Christian church? You can describe all of Christian history in three words. Formation, deformation, and reformation. The church was formed by Jesus. It was deformed by paganism. And it was reformed through the Protestant. It's being reformed through the Protestant Reformation. You follow? Most of what people knew as Christianity through the course of Christian history was not Christianity at all. It was an amalgamation of Christian faith and pagan ideas. Right? What was standard Christian belief for over a thousand years of Christian history was not Christian at all. It was pagan, masquerading as Christian. Hence the French Revolution. Hence the birth and rise of modern skepticism. Right? If that's what God is like, if that's how God functions, I'll have none of it. The Roman Empire didn't get converted to Christianity. It converted Christianity to itself. So instead of just lopping people's heads off and persecuting people and torturing people and acting like the devil in the name of a pagan god, you now do it in the name of Jesus. And that's Christianity for over a thousand years. The church is formed by Jesus. It becomes corrupted through its compromise of itself through the course of time. It prostitutes itself. Just like the people of God in the Old Testament prostituted themselves. And in the Protestant Reformation, Catholic priests, godly men, spiritual men, studying the scriptures and going, wait a second, the church is nothing like this. The church is nothing like Jesus. The church is nothing like the apostles. The church is nothing like what the early church was. And they began to protest against the abuses of a fallen paganized church that over the course of the millennia uh, killed 50, 100 million people. Tortured, persecuted, destroyed. For nothing more than just not accepting the dogmas and the teachings of the church. Hence the rise of secularism. Hence the rise of godless atheism. And this notion, this sense in the modern world. That if God is like that, I don't want him. He's going to burn me forever? Because I didn't have a chance to know the truth? I don't think so, right? And just think about this, just a real quick point. Your beliefs about God affect how you relate to the people around you. Now, you may not know a lot about Christian history, but, but it was, I've been to Europe. I've been to Europe, and they have these magnificent, amazing, awe-inspiring cathedrals. And you walk through these places, and you think, wow, I mean, I feel close to God when I walk through this place. But then, you go in the basement of most of these cathedrals, and guess what you find? Torture chambers. Literally. And then they still, like, showcase these instruments of torture under these churches. And what they would do is if the peoples in the community would not capitulate to the the control and the power of the church, the church would take them in the basement and torture them until they did. But now in the eyes of the church, that was no big deal. You know why that was no big deal? Because guess what? God's going to torture and burn you forever if you don't accept him. And so if I torture you for about two or three weeks, I'm doing you a favor. The basic perspectives and views you have of God affect how you treat other people. If your God is monstrous and tyrannical and dictatorial like all the pagan gods, guess how you're going to act? You see what I'm saying? So the Christian church through the course of Christian history doesn't act like Christ. It acts like pagan, cruel, tyrannical. Why? Because the teachings of the church were corrupted the false teachings of pagans through compromise and a desire for popularity. So the church lost its purity because it wanted to be popular, because it wanted to fit in. You know, I mean, li- li- literally. Like, who wants to get killed in mass, right? So it's nicer to fit in. So the history of the Christian church, formation, deformation, and reformation. And that's where we're at. We're in a reformation phase. Okay, now the Bible shows us a pagan Christian entity persecuting for a long period of time, and then... The Bible says at the end of Revelation 13, we won't read the text, you can read the text on your own time, but it says it's really powerful. It basically, it's well, not really powerful, it's really scary, but, but it talks about how there's a second power that arises on Earth and it works in conjunction with this medieval, you know, paganized, oppressive, religious system. It works together with this system to, to kind of do universally around the globe what that system did locally in Europe, okay. So the Bible says the beast has a deadly wound, and it was healed. The deadly wound of the beast was created through the rise of secularism, through the Protestant Reformation. That's that that, that wounded the church. The church lost its control. It lost its power, right? Through through the Enlightenment philosophy uh, of of the late Middle Ages and and the Protestant Reformation. So the church is losing its power, it receives a deadly wound, but the Bible predicts that the wound is going to be healed and that the whole world would wander after the beast. Meaning, and then there's this other power that arises in Revelation, and it works together with this first first beast and, and basically forces the world to receive a mark on the hand or on the forehead as a sign of allegiance to this evil, satanic power that masquerades itself in the form of Christian faith. Now now Revelation 13 ends with the whole world receiving a mark, whether you're rich or poor or free or bond, whether you're whatever you are, whatever your station, the Bible says everyone's receiving the mark of the beast. Everyone's getting it. Then Revelation 14 and verse 1 it says, Then I looked and behold, a lamb. It was standing on Mount Zion. And with them, a hundred and forty-four thousand having his name and the name of the Father written on their foreheads. This is powerful when you consider the statement in the context of Revelation chapter 13. The world's gone to hell in a handbasket. Satanic agencies have, have almost universal sway. Is there any hope? The world is dark. It's looking grim. This is the future that the Bible's predicting, is there any hope for me? Yeah. Then I looked. And I saw on Mount Zion, there was a lamb. And there was with him a group of people, a numbered group of people. And they, in the midst of all of this, have the Father's name written on their forehead. In the Bible, names represent the kind of person someone was. Jacob means liar. He was a liar. Esau means hairy. He was hairy. Yeah? Israel means prince of God, one who who, who wins a victory with God, right? Israel, who was formerly Jacob, he, he wrestled with God and he gained the victory. He became the prince of God. Names in the Bible represent the kind of person an individual was, or their character. Now think about this. In all the darkness, in all the despair, and all the craziness and satanic deception and delusion that's happening, and compulsion and force and persecution that's happening at the end of time, there's a group who are still with Jesus, and they're on the mountain, and they have the Father's name in their foreheads. Or in other words, they really love God. They understand who He is as a person. They're loyal to Him. They value Him. They see Him as generous, as kind, they see him as someone who wants their good and not their heart. Someone who has created them for joy and for blessing and for satisfaction and for wholeness and for peace. They know God for who he is. And who he is is written on them. God cannot be written on anyone's mind without their permission. Mm-hmm. These people love God for who he is. And in all the darkness, in the midst of all the despair, they hang on to their faith in God because they know who God is. God has been repre- misrepresented by this beast. This beast has, has brutalized the world, has misrepresented God, and there's people who know who God really is. And they send, and they have the Father's name written in their foreheads. Now, I was in a youth conference in Germany, and there was this girl, and she said, you know, I love my brother, I love my dad, but I don't know if I love God, because I can't hold him. That's what she said. She says I'm a physical person, I have like to hug my dad, and I love him, and I can talk with him. How do I love God? And you know, that. The answers that came to my mind were ones that you would think that I would give. Like I thought to her, as I said in my mind, I didn't say this, but I thought in my mind real quick, we have scripture. And in God in scripture is not telling you the, the experiences of other people who interacted with him so that you could know about them. He's he, he does that so you can know about you. And the messages that he gave to them are really actually messages that he's giving to you. Mm. Through them, through their experience. Mm. And so you can read those experiences. And you can hear from God, and you can pray to him. Now, this is all true, right? Like, this is true. You can get to know God through prayer and through Bible study, and, and you can draw nearer to him and, and love him. You can love him. But, uh, but that's not what I said, and I don't know why I didn't say that, but I looked at her and I said, what do you love about your dad? Like, what, are the, what are the attributes about your dad that you love? And she says, you know what? My whole life, I never really loved him like I should have loved him. But he was always generous and kind and sweet and considerate towards me. I was always his special, beautiful little princess. And then she says, you know what? My brother's fallen into hard times. And my dad, and she starts, starts saying all this stuff. He sacrifices for us. He gives himself for us. He does this for us. He does that for us. He lives for us. He's, he's given up that for us. She just, just lists all these things. And so I'm like, sitting there. What am I thinking? <laughs> Which dad? That's your heavenly father. I said, listen, if you love that goodness that you see in your dad, did you know that you love God? Because the Bible says that every good and perfect gift comes from God, from above, from the Father of lights. For God is light, and in Him there's no darkness. So you see light in your Father, you see good, and you love Him. You do, you just don't know, and the devil's confusing you and deceiving you. Guys, this group, they love God. Now, the Bible goes on to say that this group of people... They're not defiled with women. Then it goes on to say that they follow the Lamb wherever He goes. And then it says, there's no lies in them; They tell the truth about themselves and about the world. I want to just comment on this, and then we're done. 144,000. Interesting, yeah? A numbered group of people. John, you may not know this, but he's borrowing on the Old Testament. In the book of Numbers, the Israelites are saved from Egypt. God leads them to the borders of the promised land, the land that they're going to, to live in and prosper in. And there on the border, uh, the people are, are numbered prior to their interest in, entrance into the promised land. The first generation out of Egypt, they don't enter into the promised land because of unbelief. And so they die in the wilderness and their children Forty years later, about to enter into the promised land, are numbered. Now, there were two people of the first generation who got to enter into the promised land. Joshua and Caleb. Joshua, the leader of the Israelite nation, and Caleb, one of his chief uh, captains. They both get to enter into the promised land. And the reason why, according to the Bible in Numbers chapter 14, is because they followed God fully. In other words... They followed God out of Egypt, but they were also willing to follow God into Canaan. Okay, So they followed him fully. They didn't just follow him out of Egypt and then stop believing. They followed him out of Egypt and then into Canaan. So they followed God fully. So John in Revelation, when he describes these people who have the Father's name written in their forehead, who love God for who he is, not just for what he can do for them, or, or what convenience he can provide for them, but they love him as a person. They know his character. They have an intimate relationship with him on, on a heart level. They love him. They really care for him because they know he loves them and really cares for them. And he knows that his ways are life and blessing and peace. And so, when describing this group of people, he draws upon the experience of the Israelites and, in particular, Caleb and Joshua, who followed God fully. And this group of people in Revelation 14 are said to follow the Lamb not just when it's convenient or easy, not just when it provides you with material benefit, not just when you can get social status in a certain community that you were raised in, but they follow the lamb wherever he goes. So their commitment to God is not based on what God can do for me, their commitment to God is based on who God is, and therefore, they'll follow him wherever he goes, because they know he's good, even if apparently they're being led into a bad circumstance. Now this is perfect because we've described in Revelation 13 the horrific condition of the world at the end of time and how everyone is capitulating to the evil around them because they're afraid of the consequences of fidelity and faithfulness. And so this, th- th- this, who's going to follow? Who's going to be faithful? The ones who God, uh, love God for who He really is. Who really love God for who He is. And they'll follow Him wherever He goes. They won't just follow Him out of Egypt where it's really difficult. They'll follow Him into the promised land where there are challenges. And so this, this situation at the end of time, this Revelation 13 situation is kind of like the promised land. but like there's walled cities there and there's giants there and there might be difficulty and challenge there. And most of the people say, "Yeah, I'm not going to go. The same motivation that got the Israelite people out of Egypt is the motivation that kept them from getting into the promised land. And that was the motivation to escape difficulty. Mm-hmm. So they wanted to escape difficulty, so they left Egypt. But wanting to escape difficulty is why they stopped following God. Their love for God, their belief in God, was only as deep as God could do something that would benefit them. Because they didn't know God for who he was. They were using him like a mechanism, like a tool. You can only follow God wherever he goes if you know him for who he is as a person. Does this make sense? They're not defiled with women. This also borrows on the Old Testament, on the Old Testament story of the the Israelites. When they get to the Promised Land, they start having sex with Midianite women and joining into the worship of the Moabites. They're defiled with women, and this hinders them before going into the Promised Land. And this group of people, they're not entrenched in that stuff, if that makes sense. So guys, i said a lot of stuff. There's a people. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. You have the opportunity. You have the privilege to be one of those people who follow the Lamb, not just when it's convenient or easy, but to follow the Lamb wherever He goes, because He's good. He's great. He's the most admirable person in the whole universe. He's the most decent, the most decent being that exists. Generous beyond belief. Now, thank you for for letting me know that I've gone really long. Has the Spirit been here? Yeah. yeah. Have you understood? Yeah. Something.